Hello and welcome to The Yarn, a podcast by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. I'm Jordan Beasley and this is a new series sharing the best stories by the citizens journalists. To kick things off, we're going to bring you a series of stories about the climate crisis. Our first episode asks a very important question. What will reporting about the climate crisis look like post-COP26? Today, we're joined by some of Australia's leading climate journalists to find out the answer. This episode is a special panel moderated by award-winning journalist Joe Chandler. Joe is joined by editor at The Guardian, Lenore Taylor, and Adam Morton, who is The Guardian's climate editor and creator of The Guardian's podcast, Australia versus the Climate. The podcast tracks how Australia became a climate change pariah. Also joining the panel is co-editor of Overland Journal, Evelyn Araluen, and our very own Jeff Sparrow from the Centre for Advancing Journalism. They'll be discussing the challenges and responsibilities the journalists will face when covering the climate crisis post-COP26. So to start, COP26 was dubbed the best last chance to haul back catastrophic warming. In the end, what did it deliver? We hear from Lenore Taylor. Look, cops are always inefficient, imperfect, maddening. They seem like a circus, but they also happen to be the only international decision-making bodies that we have on this issue, which is existential. Um, Glasgow certainly has been imperfect, but it has performed one function that cops always perform, and that is to sort of act as a global conscience Leaders go along and, you know, they get a mirror held up to them uh, about what they're doing, how they're failing. And, you know, we are obviously failing as individual nations and collectively because the assessments of where global heating is headed, even if all countries do what they've promised to do, and, you know, we all know that is a big and improbable if, is between 1.9 degrees and 2.4 degrees Celsius, which is a catastrophe. So... You know, I think we could we can run through the you know the commitments made in Glasgow, whatever, whatever. It's not enough. It's still not enough. But some leaders are responding to that kind of pull on their conscience. Sadly, I don't think our prime minister is one of them. Um, he went to Glasgow with no 2030 target, with no policy to get to his 2050 target, and with really nothing else um, to give. Uh, so I guess we are proof that countries can try to ignore the pressure, but Glasgow, I think, is proof that gradually and over time, not quickly enough, the international pressure is rising as the obvious effects of global heating, um, you know, become clearer and clearer and people, citizens, demand that leaders act. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I agree with Lenore and I think so much about how we interpret these events comes down to expectations. I mean, as Lenore said, if we measure up what is happening in Glasgow against the task, against what the science says, it's a failure, of course. We are miles away from where we need to be and we are on a path to um, worsening extreme weather um, that's going to impact lives across the planet and nature in um, horrific ways. Um, and... I think that's got to be at the forefront of the reporting of this story, and we're obviously going to talk about that. Um, and, uh, you know, these cops are a carnival, and, of course, you have, you know, the, the loudest voices that are reported are those who talk about just how bad the story is, understandably, and it's a true story. Um, 
I think that, um, and as Lenore said, though, I mean, the other, the thing that's really important to keep in mind is that these two weeks are never go, and no cop is going to solve the problem. No cop is going to save the world. We have a kind of, you know, uh, perhaps understandable binary approach to these things sometime in the media. Can Glasgow save the planet? Or, and it's a, you know, success or fail. Well, it's, yeah. it's never going to live up to that. But um, if you look at where we are compared to um, the last COP in Madrid two years ago, Glasgow was delayed a year because of COVID, um, we have seen significant movement, nothing like enough, but significant movement by um, G7 nations in the commitments, which, you know, again, let's see if they live up to them. India's made a significant commitment in the short term at this COP. Uh, The US and China have come out uh, overnight our time with a joint declaration saying they're going to act together in the years ahead, which the detail of which is interesting but less important than the intent, right, because um, there was some talk at the start early on in this conference that will it be another Copenhagen back in 2009, which is widely seen as a failure. Mm -hmm. This is not on that scale, I don't think. I think. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's it's all about nuance. So I guess that sort of tendency we have to kind of pick a word, you know, is it, was it a disaster, Copenhagen-esque, was it vaguely hopeful, you know, Paris, but even then we're falling into the same tropes that get us into trouble in the first place of sort of trying to just, you know, find that, that, um, that headline um, encapsulation of something that's so complex. Um, but e- Evelyn, um, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think we were sort of echoing Lenore and Adam here. I obviously, you know, you've got to have realistic expectations entering into um, this this particular form of of global organising, and the precedent for Australia's participation. Uh, was already set in the Pacific Islander Forum in 2019 in August and the significant failure, not just, you know, to um, to Australia and, and to our commitments, but also to the broader Pacific and Oceanic region. You know, we have a hell of a lot of responsibility there that we're just completely and totally abdicating. So I expected nothing more from Scott Morrison than complete failure in that regard. Um, but what has been, I think, really inspiring and empowering has been seeing the level of organising that's been going around on around alternative venues and alternative opportunities for uh, grassroots organisations, for smaller legislative bodies or just different forms of collectives um, kind of emerging and taking up as much space as they possibly can um, throughout COP26. And I've been really, um, really glad to see, you know, organisations like um, uh, Minga Indigena, who I otherwise would not have heard of, and that's a kind of collective body of Indigenous activists and organisers from uh, predominantly from uh, South America. Um, we've also got, you know, like more local um, Seed Mob and 350 Pacific, and they've been doing amazing actions, um, really bringing in that emphasis on the fact that, you know, 80% of the regions that are under direct threat, direct climate threat at the moment are, um, you know, cared for and, and have Indigenous custodians mm-hmm. that should be a part of that, um, should be a part of that process. So I've been really inspired seeing the incredible work that they've been doing and that energy and I think if we can keep that up and keep as as much as you know we want to be talking about this global stage of of international politics and and you know major policy agreements, like we also have to be really thinking about that strength of collective organising from grassroots communities. So it's it's been a failure in one regard, I think, um, but it, it's it's been a bit of a win for that energy and that momentum there. 
Yeah, when, when I think about these things, I, I always recall that famous gag from the Chinese leader when asked about um, assessing the, the merits of the French Revolution. He said, it's too early to tell. And I think that when you talk about something like this, that's more than just a joke. The meaning of these events will only become clear in retrospect. Mm. It's the future generations that will judge how we behaved and whether we behaved uh, appropriately. I mean, I think what we did see with this event was clearly a ratcheting up of the rhetoric, which is a good thing. But, of course, you know, if you're not cynical about the rhetoric around climate change, then you're not paying attention. One of the statistics that always sticks in my mind is that the great majority of the human emitted carbon that's in the atmosphere today was released after Kyoto, not before after a conference in which all the world leaders pledged to do something um, about it. So, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily corrosive in this space to be cynical. I think it's kind of realistic. But as I say, I think the future will be the judge of, you know, whether we have done enough or what more could have been done. Thank you all. Um, so now I wanted to begin, I guess, thinking about media performance around all of this. Um and I think there's been a lot more focus in late recent years, a bit more introspection about amongst journalists, amongst writers, amongst editors about you know, what we could have done better. Um, in 2019, ahead of the UN summit in New York, Columbia Journalism Review and The Nation launched um, this Covering Climate Now initiative with an article that was sort of a call to arms for, for the US media in particular, but which resonated, you know, everywhere, um, particularly in Australia. Um, the article, if anyone wants to look it up, was called The Media Are Complacent While the World Burns. Um, and it really did just call out sort of some of the epic failures in climate reporting in the US and beyond. And it it began a program which is continuing still around trying to improve the quality and content of climate journalism. Um, I know The Guardian's a signatory to that particular initiative, something like 460 organisations around the world are part of it. Um, we are at CADGE as well. Um, so it's sort of begun to, I guess, try to equip and encourage journalists to think about how they do a better job and how to direct and frame their stories so that they land where they need to land. Um, and I was interested, Mark Hertzgard, who's the director of that initiative and who has himself been covering climate since around 1989. I mean, he wrote as, as the as COP started that the best news out of Glasgow was that the US media was finally paying some serious attention to the climate crisis. Um, which would seem to be coming off something of a low base. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you've each observed about coverage of Glasgow by the media here in Australia and internationally. Um, and, of course, I guess the, the, the item that's grabbed the most attention was that big moment where we saw the scales fall from the eyes of Murdoch's Australian tabloid editors, um, and there's been a good deal of discussion around that. Maybe that's significant. Maybe you don't see it as particularly significant. But I'd really like to hear about what you see as the most notable shifts in the kind of content or the weight or the tone of coverage um, as we've ploughed into and uh, into this COP. And Adam, maybe given you know your bringing your perspective from your recent deep dive into the sort of thirty years of reporting archive, how are you seeing this COP being reported in this country? Um, it's always a a bit risky as a journalist working in the space to comment on what your uh, your um, uh, peers and competitors are doing, I suppose. 
Um, I there certainly seems to be a lot of it, right? There's a, a lot of coverage, and I think that that reflects um, what uh, editors and uh, publishers and reporters are hearing from their audiences. I mean, we don't, you know. We always should be sceptical about polling, but there's no shortage of it saying that people are really interested in this issue and increasingly concerned. And I assume that's in part what's driven um, the News Corp uh, Mission Zero week-long campaign such as it was. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, it's always a bit unsightly to spruik your own work, but the, the opportunity, you know, I think that there is um, being more resources thrown at it. Certainly we're doing that at The Guardian. You know, two and a half years ago, we had one environment reporter. Now we have three or four plus other people in other rounds who are experts and writing on it regularly. And it's been a great opportunity for Graham Redfern and I to work on this podcast over the last few months um, where, you know, Lenore has made a decision that we should put all this time into researching this history and, and working out what it can tell us about where we are now. And that was a great opportunity. And I, I think, and to be honest, I have been, it's been really well received and, uh, you know, I think is probably our best downloaded podcast. Um, and that perhaps surprises me in a way that there is that degree of appetite for something that is a bit of a history in climate politics. But I think it shows that people are really care and, and increasingly um, publishers, uh, you know, uh, reflecting that. Um, whether the coverage is um, uh, good, uh, I think others should probably judge. I note that the News Corp coverage, I think, was, well, look, the upside was it what, about it was that there was a lot of focus on opportunity. And I think that's increasingly where a lot of reporting will be on the economic opportunity rather than this just being, you know, just the doom and gloom story. Unfortunately, a lot of that coverage also included the opportunity for the gas and coal industries and the need to open up a nuclear industry, which isn't really politically or economically viable at the moment, if it ever will be. Um, and I think a lot of the coverage that we have of climate change in this country is still very politically focused. What does it mean for Scott Morrison? What does it mean for the government? What does it mean for Anthony Albanese and Labor? Um, but there certainly is a shift in recent years where we are, there is a, a lot less coverage that disputes the science. I don't think there's enough of it that ties policy to the science. Certainly that's something we try to do. Um, but, you know, I, if you go back, I don't know, I was thinking today about Copenhagen in 2009. There was a hell of a lot of coverage then. The, the, I don't know if there's more now or not, but I think there's more in-depth coverage. And I do think the needle has shifted in terms of how we frame this really significantly in recent years. So I think that's a positive move. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's my ramble on it. Well, two of those points, are, you know, I'm just thinking that particularly around, I guess, the, the political horse race dimensions, that was... Uh, one of the things that was called out as one of the fundamental failures in the covering climate now, and I, I know I think also by Alan Rushbridger in, in, in years gone by and Bill McKibben, I think, you know, the Americans would call it beltway coverage of, you know, what does it mean for the politicians? And I noticed Lenore remarked on that as well in, in sort of summing up where she thinks um, Scott Morrison's going to land with this ultimately. But I guess there is now that awareness and, and a kind of a, a self-awareness to not get stuck in that riff and not to be seduced down that avenue. Um, and I guess the other thing you talked about there, Adam, too, was the siloing, you know, that once or twice, you know, this was an environment story for so many years and now finally it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a story that is, you know, climate is the story for every round. And I think we're seeing a lot more of that multidimensional aspect that you just referred to there where everybody in the newsroom is one way or another reporting on climate. Um, um, and uh, um, Jeff or Lenore, do you want to jump in on how you're seeing 
Um, I can jump in. I do think there is good cause for the media to be self-reflective about how we report on this issue. I think historically there has been um, a real inattention to detail, a sort of a sort of unwillingness to call out lies and nonsense as lies and nonsense, a kind of laziness so that things are reported as a he said, she said story, even if one of the things that is being said is clearly not true. Um, I can remember how that felt right at the beginning of Tony Abbott's campaign against, you know, um, the, the, the carbon, what he called the carbon tax, which clearly wasn't a carbon tax, and that feeling of, I could, you could just feel like facts were falling through your fingers because he'd say something that was nonsense and I'd barely have finished writing a story explaining why it was nonsense. He'd said something else that was nonsense and every piece of nonsense would be dutifully reported on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, you know, as if it was made sense with one paragraph on the end from Labor saying, yeah, but that's not true. I don't think that's responsible reporting and I fear that we're going to get another version of that in this election campaign. Not quite as stark, but I think a lot of the policies that the government is uh, is announced, uh, that they're, they're announcing right now are they kind of pretend policies. They, they have the intention of doing something, but they don't actually have a mechanism to do something. And so it's difficult to explain why they're inadequate. It takes time to explain why they're inadequate. And, and the, the spin, the, the political messaging is coming at us at the moment like those balls out of a tennis ball machine. And I feel like we're going to have that same challenge to keep up. But it's really critically important that we do. Like just to give one example, that announceable, the announceable at, the, at COP26, one of them was money to help least developed countries adapt to climate change. Now, to start with, it should have been delivered through the Green Climate Fund, but Scott Morrison, you know, took us out of that entirely just with the flick of a hand on an Alan Jones interview one day. So it wasn't. And then it's really just a number and a story and a headline, oh, look, we've done something nice. But we, it's on us to go back and, um, and, and really check up on it. For example, it was reported as a $2 billion commitment in many newspapers because that added up a lot of money that had already been announced. And at the same time as it was being announced, Greenpeace was releasing a report which found that about a quarter of all the aid projects in 2018 and 2019 that we had said were about climate change uh, or helping climate adaptation in the Indo-Pacific actually had nothing to do with it at all. So it's on us to follow up. It's on us to hold them accountable. It's on us to unpick the spin. And I just fear that the spin is going to be coming at us so thick and fast that that's going to be um, quite a difficult thing to do. As for News Corp, well, I guess it's better than um, the coverage before, but I don't see a I don't see a genuine change of heart, really. Um, I think uh, if the government were to ever to come up with really effective climate policies that really would uh, push the economy towards the transformation that it needs. Mm, I don't think that News Corp would be, um, I don't think they would be running joyful advertising supplements about that. Okay, so we've heard of two people who are involved in, I guess, producing the daily content around this COP and, and shaping it. Um, 
Jeff and Evelyn, as, as people who are consuming, I guess, and reading at the other end, are you seeing much of a change or are you seeing, um, yeah, um, I guess any of this, the, the things that Lenora is talking about, we can see them being called out in The Guardian, but in the broader um, media sphere? Look, I think there's no doubt that there's now some really excellent journalism being done around climate change. But, um, I mean, I think when we talk about this, I think a lot about that Nathaniel Rich piece that was done in the uh, New York Times a few uh, a few years back where he discussed the, the, uh, the consensus that existed around climate science in the 1980s, and, you know, the bipartisan commitment in American politics. Climate change is real. Something needs to be done about it and how that broke down and I think it's a really kind of interesting thing to think about in for, for a number of ways. Partly that that period in which that consensus existed is, of course, the kind of high point of the you know um, of neoliberalism, and that's really important to the way that the climate debate has unfolded. But I think the other thing that's really important when we talk about the media representation is that is also a period that corresponds with a really significant change in the in the way that progressives thought about politics. So you know, it, it's it was the decade in which there was a shift from, say, the direct politics of the 60s and the 70s, which was very much focused on material structural change and a shift towards a kind of more campus-based politics that was much more around symbolic and cultural change. Now, that's a complicated issue. We don't have time to go into it, but I think it's really worth remembering so that the notion of, of, of culture war came into the political discourse in 1992 at the high point of all of these debates. And there is no worse way to talk about climate politics than through the lens of culture war, that the atmospheric carbon doesn't care about culture or symbolism. What it cares about is whether or not we reduce the amount of stuff. And I think that's kind of really important because when we think about the media debates around climate, so often they're refracted through this lens and it's absolutely disastrous. And that's really important, I think, when thinking about something like um, the the new Murdoch, um, yeah, the, the new Murdoch orientation, there are clear things that have to happen. Coal has to stay in the ground. Are people arguing for that or are they not? Mm-hmm. And to try and cut through that cultural war spin. Otherwise, we will just be forever embroiled in these, you know, symbolic debates that go nowhere. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you want to be really cynical, it's just a shift from denial into one of the other tactics that will just, you know, allow us to, the fossil fuel to, to continue business as usual for a little bit longer by dancing a di- to a different kind of tune. But Evelyn. Yeah, I resonate with elements of what you're saying there, Jeff, with an added kind of like layer of perhaps, you know, um, uh, cynicism there, you know, particularly speaking to the representation of Indigenous peoples in conversations around climate change and climate organising and climate justice. You know, we're often sort of configured at as as the, the canaries of civilization, where where you know it's seen as this, this front line um, in in terms of uh, who will uh, be the first to suffer, who will be the first to become climate change refugees, um, which is absolutely true. But then the narrative um, uh, spins into, um, uh, you know, this this very weak idea of, oh, well, but, but we can save ourselves if we just start listening to Indigenous people at some point. And there's no real clarity around that and there's no structures of power and there's no actual structures of representation and participation um, that are actually coming from um, any any um, sort of real political body here. 
and and so I'm 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 cynical in that regard, but um, I do have a lot of faith in the the power and the impact of of indigenous organising in this area, specifically from a cultural lens. Um, because we do have to talk about sovereignty and we do have to talk about the the violation of our sovereignty that um, uh, has has facilitated this kind of destruction. So that's but that's just completely a side point. Um, you know, the nature of overland, like we get um, uh, we have sort of, you know, constant climate coverage. It's one of the issues that we we are responding to most consistently. I thought we'd be getting a lot of reflections and I thought we'd be getting a lot of pictures um, responding to, you know, the, the intricacies of COP26 and specific policies and, you know, the themes of each day. But it's been really interesting because we, we just haven't received that. We've just received a lot of pictures about people wanting to talk about fatigue um, and a sort of a fatigue that arises from watching year after year failed policy, particularly when we think about Australia's um, uh, uh, involvement in that. Um, and where I think we should be pushing um, for further momentum is to be holding Labor as well accountable for a failure to um, to to um, uh, push back against the the coalition here in this regard. So um, I'd like to see. I would. I would like to see. A bit more of the politics. I know that that's not necessarily the most productive, but where everyone's doing an amazing job of increasing this this climate literacy here, and there's so many re- excellent resources out there that allow people to actually have those conversations outside of, you know, mainstream media and in their own communities, which I think is really really empowering. Um, but in terms of Murdoch, don't trust that one bit. All of that is going to be used for absolutely cooked purposes, and we need to be very careful of how the, those algorithms are going. Going to be um, are going to be shifting as a result of new audiences accessing, you know, Sky News and such. Um, so I'm I'm just deeply, deeply suspect of that, and I'm I'm, I'm not happy about where I think that's going. Evelyn, I want to maybe maybe stay with you there a bit and pick up one at that point you were making earlier about Indigenous voices and hearing, um, like not just hearing but listening to and responding to those stories and about storytelling because I don't know, um, one of the, I guess, seismic moments for me as an observer of climate summits was that one in 2014 in New York when the Marshall Islands poet um, Kathy Jetnil um, um, Kijana read that amazing poem um, addressed to her daughter. Businesses with broken morals, no blindfolded bureaucracies going to push this mother ocean over the edge. No one's drowning, baby. No one's moving. No one's losing their homeland. No one's becoming a climate change refugee. Or should I say, no one else. Which was so angry and determined and visionary and intimate um, and just so completely different to the kind of cold, carefully impersonal sort of diatribe and diplomacy that we usually get from these summits. You know, the blah, 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 I guess, is... As, um, as it's been called. Um, but my sense was that, and maybe, again, you never know because you live inside your own silo and my own particular point in the trajectory at that point was that I, but I really felt like that sounded a shift in the dialogue. It put justice and concepts of justice at the centre and it also moved the storytelling and I'm speaking here as someone who is an outsider who has routinely jumped into the Pacific to tell stories that are other people's stories and I can, and but that lens of being the outsider removes the power of those stories. So to hear her poetry and her reflections was suddenly reminded me of what you, and, and when I was thinking about this, I was reading um, what you said to the Sydney Writers' Festival, which was, 
Um, why do stories matter? Because they must, because story is the voice of history and the voice of futurity and the voice of time. We don't know what our future holds and withholds from possibility, from justice. We do not know what is in reach, but we must. We must write in the hope of radical imagination. Um, so I, it's a big question, but are we there yet? Are we seeing those stories being told more truly and by the right people? I think those stories, I think, um, and, and thank you for bringing up Kathy Detnell Kitchener because she is an amazing activist and advocate and I, I, I too was introduced to her work with the 2014 um, summit and, and um, I followed her, her career quite closely since then and a lot of her work was 350, 350 Pacific. Um, uh, and, and that kind of storytelling and that place for storytelling I think is really important because... Um, you know, if we actually look at the theory of activism and organising, um, you know, we have this this action theory gap, which is the main area of, of organising and mobilisation that we need to be concerned with. You know, people are aware, they are conscious, largely. They are, they are you know, conscious of the consequences of, of colonialism, the consequences of, of um, uh, dispossession and, and how that is impacting um, everyone globally in terms of climate. Uh, but it's actually about really solidifying a commitment to action that that is is the hard part. And all of the research demonstrates that it is actually story, that it is actually emotion, it is actually like a deep personal connection and empathy towards people who are at the front line of that. And so that's why I think seeing some of the actions that have been coming particularly out of, of the Pacific have been really powerful uh, because it is really about putting that human face. Um, so I, I can't remember actually if it was the president of Tuvalu um, or I think is it the Prime Minister of um, of Tonga? But you know, speaking from the ocean, like having to speak from the sea, and when we're talking about these consequences with with each major um, uh, with each major summit, this this can be tracked in terms of um, how water is moving, how um, you know drinking water is being in increasingly polluted, and these these deeply deeply human costs that Indigenous peoples are absolutely at the front line. So whether they're given that space and power on the main stage or whether it has to be with this alternative organising for storytelling to be a part of um, uh, global conversations around climate, I think that's that's um, always going to be a question of who is willing to give up the kind of power that they know might actually undermine these sorts of discourses and and um, the, the, you know, erasive effects that they have. But I think those stories are absolutely out there. The momentum is out there. It's just about people being willing to actually step step a bit further outside of mainstream media spaces, um, about outside of conventional publishing channels to actually access those. And um, so, you know, an enormous shout out to to Cathy and the work that she's been doing there with, with those storytelling initiatives and with collaborations with other Indigenous peoples through 350. Um, I, I love that stuff. I just think that's really where we've got to go. It's, it is actually just how you put that human face towards it and um, how you get people people who know but simply don't care to start actually making some changes in their own life and to start using their own voice in a political in a political space. Yeah. And I guess at the risk of turning this into a Guardian love fest, I guess that's one of the um, the power of the Pacific project is that particularly, you know, we've seen in the last two years, we've seen reporters in place in community telling their own stories about this rather than relying on the kind of the trope of the outsider wandering in and 
not really being able to, you know, to fight it. Despite our best efforts, we can't really tell that story with the, with the power that, that they can. We might be able to interpret it. I think there's a space for the outsider and the insider in telling these stories. But That might be a good time to give a shout out for the other podcast we did called An Impossible Choice, which yeah. was done by our Pacific, our Pacific network of reporters and I thought was really amazing about the impossible choice of, you know, of having to leave your your homeland because of the impacts of climate change. Yeah. And again, it was the intimacy of those stories about yeah. where you bury your umbilical cord and your placenta and the ownership of the land and 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 those living really, between two hurricanes. Exactly. Yeah. That was just yeah, just just it's that it's that rawness of the of a personal story that really cuts through the crap, doesn't it, in the end. Um Look, I'm really aware that we're racing through our allotted time, so I, I want to um, talk to Jeff for a minute, um, or particularly direct a question at him, and um, and then I've got one more that I think is probably the one that we're all most interested in, at least hearing from you on. But um, um, with Jeff, I guess um, it's this sort of idea that we talked about before, beyond denial. I mean, Michael Mann, the US climatologist, you know. Uh, has pointed out that, you know, denial is not really, doesn't work anymore. You know, we, we can't look around any environment and deny it any longer. But it's morphed into this sort of whole like, artillery of new diabolical Ds, you know, delay, distraction, deflection, division, doomism, which then becomes do-nothingism. Um, and all of them, one way or another, are kind of designed to hijack the agenda and our efforts and just kind of consume all of our time in, one, in you know, in a different way to the way denial has for 30 years. But um, in, in your book, um, I think you've tried to sort of disarm some of these, particularly around this kind of distraction, deflection game of blaming us as individuals, you know, that we can shame or, you know, wear this guilt for our lifestyle or in our choices rather than looking at the big polluters and the big profiteers. Um and, and I guess, you know, as I understand it, your, your argument is sort of radically um, that maybe we are not the problem, but um, maybe we are the solution. Um, and so I'm just wondering, are reporters and editors and readers sort of awake to this kind of manipulation and are we still going down these rabbit holes of, of, of self-loathing over our lifestyles or are we going to get to the point where we say, actually, we can fix this? Yeah. It, look, it's a super interesting question, Joe. Like, I think a lot of people think that the main enemy of climate action is denialism. But right from the start, an animal, you know, will back me up on this. Right from the start, the big polluters always had multiple strategies. And at, at the very same time as they were pushing denialism, they often had different campaigns that were heavily invested in in various kinds of co-option. And that has always been the corporate response to pollution. So in the book, I try to go through this in detail. I want one of the classic examples, and I, I did a bit for The Guardian on this at one stage, is, you know, the American um, plastics producers uh, and the, the manufacturers of disposable packaging created Keep America Beautiful specifically to, to, to hive off any attempts to curtail their own their their, their own um, their own profits, they, they coined the term litterbug specifically yeah. to turn pollution into something that was an individual problem and um, and, and and not a social problem. Or, or the more recent iteration of that is is BP establishing the notion of carbon footprints 
again, to establish this idea that we are all collectively responsible for, you know, for, for, for climate change. And MIT did this study of the carbon footprint idea where they established that because carbon is a collective institution in America, it didn't matter what kind of lifestyle you lived. You could be a Buddhist monk or you could be a homeless person and your carbon footprint would not decrease one point. But I think part of the reason for this focus on individuals and making individuals responsible, it's partly a deflection, but there's a more sinister component to it, which is, I think, that if you foster this idea that ordinary people are rubbish, that ordinary people are the problem, that humanity is this kind of plague that is spreading across the world, it is so politically demoralising and it is so um, disruptive of any attempt to kind of change the world. So one of the things I try to do in this book is to go back and tell the stories that again and again when the most egregious acts of pollution take place, actually the initial response is that people are appalled by them and try to fight back. So just very quickly, one that always comes to mind is, you know, there was so much debate in Australia recently about plastic bags and, you know, how consumers crave plastic bags. It's super interesting. In the 1950s, when the supermarket chains start to introduce plastic bags, there is a mass campaign against it. Ban the bags. And in fact, the plastic industry has to run a PR campaign to stop people recycling. People are hanging them out on their clotheslines, washing them and reusing them. And okay, it's a trivial kind of example, but I think if you establish the idea that actually most people don't want to see the world burn, most people want a clean environment, most people want to take change if we can provide them with something meaningful to do, it totally reframes the debate. And this notion that we're all responsible and that we're that the average human being is just this greedy fat slob, I think we totally have to reject it because if we don't, then we do it. Um, as I said, we've only, we've only got a few more minutes if we want to leave some time for our, um, for our audience to throw some questions at us. Um, and I've got a long list of other questions I wanted to ask you, but if I have to, if I have to pick one, it's the one that consumes me and, and, and is often asked of me when I've done any kind of panel or event in the last five years talking about climate and science reporting. And it's, it's the hope versus fear narrative and the difference between being alarming and alarmist. Um, and uh, I remember listening to David Wallace Wells, the American journalist who wrote um, The Uninhabitable Earth, and he was talking about his approach to that and how he was sort of a latecomer to the climate story. And then he sat down to read it all and he was horrified and felt that he had been misled by the climate journalists. And so the opening of the story is something like, it is worse, much worse than you think or than you know. And one of his um, arguments was that climate journalists had kind of conspired, for want of a better word, with, with scientists with this belief that if they didn't put a bit of hopeful gloss on it, it wouldn't, you know, they needed a spoonful of sugar to make it go down and that if we didn't um, have a hopeful spin, that if we all do the right thing, it'll turn out okay and that that has somehow obscured the reality of how bloody awful it really is and how bad things are. So on the one hand, you've got people saying, you know, Michael Mann and, and Catherine Hayhoe saying be careful not to be too doomist because that becomes a instrument of inaction and then we have people like, you know, Clive Hamilton, who for years has been saying hope is a distraction and hope leads us up a garden path that makes us think it will somehow magically be okay. So where do we fall on this? How do we get that? Where's the sweet spot in this? Do you 
see a way that the audience, the readers, the public can, what's the message we, what's the way we need to get this message delivered where it will resonate? I'm happy to jump in. Uh, look, I, I think, um, uh, it's a really, really tricky question. I don't pretend to have, um, you know, penetrating insight, but I think that having too much hope is a form of denial and we need to be careful about it and we need to accurately represent what the science says. I think that also, I mean, the sweet spot for me is we also need to reflect, and it's a useful framing device, I find, that every fraction of a degree makes a difference. So, you know, we have to avoid these binary questions of unavoidable disaster on a scale unimaginable. I mean, there's some truth to that about where we're currently headed, obviously, and we shouldn't shy away from it, but we have to factor into that, have enough nuance to acknowledge that action. Um, and, and I think, that, and I, you know, I mean, there's a whole lot here about, you know, what Jeff was saying about personal responsibility. I, I absolutely don't think that we need to say that every ounce of personal responsibility makes a difference, but I think collective action that can change governments and corporates is key and and every bit of change will make a difference. And um, if that's a hopeful outlook, I guess I'm hopeful, but I think that's what the framing should be when we're looking at our um, our reporting and analysis. I feel kind of uncomfortable looking at it through that frame in that I see our job as always reporting the facts fully, no matter how horrible they are, no matter how scary they are, we have to present the facts. And it's not my job to massage them so they're a little bit more palatable to people. But we present the facts and we also have um, a responsibility to present solutions, to to write about what can be done. And in this regard, I do agree with Jeff that the most powerful thing that people can do is demand policy change because um you know, we, we have to change the way we generate electricity. We have to change the way that we um, we get around via transport. We have to change big systemic things and, you know, every little bit of turning off my lights at night, that's going to help a little bit, but it's not going to make the systemic change that we need. So we need to, we need to show people where solutions lie, but I don't, I really don't feel like it is our job to, think about sugarcoating facts to make them more digestible. Our job is to present the facts just exactly how they are. Absolutely. And can I just, sorry, I should have added, I know I shouldn't jump back in probably, but we have, in terms of an industry point of view, an absolute responsibility to be rigorous in, in how we reflect what the government and politicians are actually doing. And I don't think I probably said this enough before, you know, there's, there's very clear examples right now where we're failing at that. There was an electric vehicle policy released yesterday, which got, you know, largely reported as a pivot by the Prime Minister and he'd been a hypocrite because of what he'd said previously, which is true. But it also, in the document, said it would cut emissions nationally by 8 million tonnes over 15 years. That's and that's a tiny, like, fraction of a percentage point change. It's nothing in it. Didn't even appear in most of the reporting. We just, I mean, I, I'm probably answering a different question there, but, you know, facts, right? Facts. If we start with facts, that's got to be. And Joe, I think just on that, I mean, it goes to your question about um, going away from denialism to deflection. I think the government's policies at the moment are a massive, big exercise in deflection. That's what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. 
I um, think as well, though, there is that there, there, everything that is being said here, absolutely. And um, perhaps it comes to how we think about the media landscape in Australia and how different forces can function to kind of platform certain forms of, you know, of, of reporting here. Um, there has to be, I think, like a really active space for encouraging local community dialogues around how we work with the built environments that we have, how we work with new technologies and how we can, um, as, as much as we do need to avoid this deeply neoliberal narrative that like it's an individual's choice about what light bulbs they use that is going to, you know, solve, solve global warming. Um, uh, we do actually really need to think about collective organising um, and just radically transforming the way that we live, um, you know, uh, which is already largely unethical. We have we have so many other um, uh, global national concerns about, about, you know, population and housing and, and, and regardless about whether that, that is a, a, um, contributed to um, larger emissions, but also, if it, you know, we need to be talking about housing justice. We need to be talking about how other forms of justice are linked to climate change and how that kind of action has to begin within communities. And it has to begin with communities feeling empowered to actually present nuanced and localised concerns that need to be represented by policy. So there's not going to be sweeping changes that are able to actually attend to the specific needs of every single community, uh, particularly not in a country like Australia, where we have such diverse, um, uh, di such diverse environments. Um, it's just increasing that awareness and that participation, that sensation of, you know, being able to feel like you can actually contribute to your community if you are, you know, if you are literate about these issues, if there is space for open conversation and dialogue about how, what what action can we do working together. We do want to be focusing on global targets. We do want to be focusing on 2030, not 2050. Yes, that is important. But 2030 is where we really need to be thinking about in terms of the Pacific um, and in terms of our responsibility there and really putting as much of that power in the hands of the people as we possibly can because there are justice issues now. There are already climate change refugees now and they need security and they need safety and they need as much justice as we are able to give them. So, you know, working for a smaller media organisation Organization. We don't have that kind of reach, but we do have the liberation of, of you know, like we're we're not really afraid to be sued by anyone because we'll never we'll, we'll never be able to pay them. So being able to have a space to support that kind of journalism, I think, is really important. And working together with everybody else in that in that landscape to achieve as much um, representation of local issues as we possibly can, I think, is key. Just, just, just very, very quickly. I mean, I, I like everyone here. I've written both of these articles. I've written the Doomer article about how terrible things are going to be. I've written the breezily optimistic article. Neither of them works um, particularly well. And I think, in some respects, this is a problem without a solution. I think this is really important. It's an unpopular thing to say, but the media is not going to solve this problem. Climate change is not something that the media can solve. And until there is some kind of movement to force governments to do what needs to be done, the limits that we have as people working in the media are going to be really apparent. I mean, the example that I come back to is something like Black Lives Matter. And once that movement arose, it totally transformed the conversations that were had in the media around things like policing and the nature of justice and the treatment of African-Americans until we have something like that around climate, I think we are going to struggle to get crap, to get traction with things that, 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 that we write. People really want the media to conjure a movement into existence, but that's not how these, these things work, I don't think. 
That was Jeff Sparrow and Joe Chandler from the Centre for Advancing Journalism, joined with The Guardian's Lenore Taylor and Adam Morton, and Overland's Evelyn Araluen. You've been listening to The Yarn. This episode is in collaboration with the Being Human Festival, an annual celebration of the humanities. The Yarn is produced by myself, Jordan Beasley, and Clancy Bylan. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim, with editing also by Clancy Bylan. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts or jump onto thecitizen.org.au for more work by our journalists at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Jordan Beasley, and thanks for listening.